guys. Uh, if you have your Bible, uh, open to 1 Samuel chapter 27. 1 Samuel 27. This morning we're going to pick up where Greg left off last week. And we'll be finishing 1 Samuel this morning, as well as dipping our toe into the first chapter of 2 Samuel. So 1 Samuel 27 through 2 Samuel 1 is our, is our aim to cover this morning. And I hope you were able to, to read those chapters. I always, for those of you who are new to the college ministry, I'm glad you're here. Uh, just so you know, I, I'm, you will, I'm a broken record. I always advocate uh, trying to read the passage before you come. You'll get a whole lot more out of the lesson if you do. If you've read it thoughtfully, uh, especially when it's a longer passage like this, you'll get a lot more out of it. There's a lot in these chapters, and, and it's very, they're very fascinating. In the chapters we're going to study today, we're going to come across the final, sort of the final downfall of King Saul. We're going to see the slow and imperfect but steady rise of David, who's already been anointed uh, to take the kingship. It's, he's, it doesn't get to the, the formal uh, ascension to the kingship today, but, but we're, we get closer to it. Like I said, there, there's a lot here. There, normally, we would read a passage before we begin. I couldn't find in the, in the passage this morning just a really obvious passage to read before we start just to give you a sense of the whole, because it bounces back and forth between David and Saul, David and Saul, David and Saul so much. It's hard to find one passage that captures the sense of the whole. Uh, and so this morning, I think we're just going to pray and then dive into it and try to cover the, the text as we work through it. Um, uh, we'll pray, and I'll, I will let you know how we're going to divide it up, and then we'll jump in, all right? So let's, let's pray before we dive into the Word. Lord, the, the passage that we're going to study this morning First, what we know is 1 Samuel 27 through 2 Samuel 1. Everything in it, every other text we make reference to is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And Lord, I pray that as we cover a lot of ground in this text, I pray that you would slow down time for us. Would you, would you help us to work work our way through this passage, what to us would feel like a, a, a slow and steady pace, you know, be able to cover a lot of ground. And, while, and, and in so doing, would you give us eyes to see what you would have us to see in this text? Would you give us minds to understand it clearly? Would, Lord, would you give us um, hearts to embrace not only the truth of this passage, but, um, but what you would have us to, to see about you and and ourselves in this text? Would you give us wills to obey then what you would have us to do? What, what, should, uh, what admonishment should we and ad, admonition should we uh, heed out of this text this morning? Would you do all of those things for us, please, Lord? Then would you give me the help that I need to teach? Would you give us all ears to hear what the Spirit is saying in the Word? And I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um... If you were able to read these ahead of time, you'll know what I mean when I say it bounces back and forth between David and Saul a lot. One of the good, good things about that is it helps us to, to pretty easily to divide it up uh, into sections to think about it a little more clearly. So if you're taking notes, here's how we're going to do that. Um, first, chapters 27 and 28. Chapters 27 and 28, um, we're going to be presented with two dilemmas. Two dilemmas or predicaments. Two dilemmas. Uh, David 
in chapter 27, Saul in chapter 28, each uh, for reasons that are not commendable, even though they're not equally bad, find themselves in dilemmas, predicaments. And there's a lot that we can learn here in these chapters, so I want to take some time to do that. That's first. Two dilemmas, chapters 27 and 28. Then in chapters 29 and 30, we're going to see David's deliverance. David's deliverance. He, he gets himself into a dilemma in chapter 27. We'll see his deliverance in chapter, chapters 29 and 30. Uh, and, and when we look at these chapters, we're, we're not going to just see God's mercy and favor on David to get him out of his situation. But I want us also to note how in these chapters, David, even imperfectly, but still foreshadows a future coming, a greater anointed one still to come, Christ himself. Third, in chapter 31, we're going we're gonna to come back to Saul and see Saul's demise. We're gonna just, it's, it's, there's nothing positive about that chapter. We're just going to see the tragic end of King Saul in chapter 31. And then finally, 2 Samuel 1, we're going to think about David's dedication. Uh, David's dedication to the Lord's anointed, his dedication to his friend Jonathan. And it includes at the end, uh, 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 there's going to be an important relevant point for us to consider. Uh, and my aim, as always, uh, is to give us at least a few minutes around our tables to discuss at the end. It's not always my achievement, but it's always my aspiration. So that being said, let's start at the beginning. Go back to chapter 27 and, uh, and 28, and this juxtaposition of, of uh, predicaments between David and Saul. So let's think about two, two dilemmas. We don't get, looking at chapter 27, we don't get very far into the chapter at all before we see the, the, the beginnings of David's situation here. Remember the context as we come into this chapter. Um, if you remember the context from Greg taking us through several chapters prior to this last week, I'm, I'm sure Greg felt rather repetitive uh, working through those because it's just story after story after story of Saul pursuing David, Saul trying to put David to death, Saul repeatedly hurling his spear at him um, from point-blank range trying to, trying to kill him. It kind of feels like Groundhog Day. And, and uh, you know, and, and David had his opportunities to kill Saul, but he never did. That's going to kind of be significant in what we see in these chapters. But we, we come into this chapter with David having, having spent, at the very least, months, months of constantly running for, for his life. Uh, and not just running for his life, but sleeping in caves. Like, just, just, just hiding and sleeping in caves. I mean, like, if you or I had to do that for like a week, that would feel like an eternity. If it would, it would rather, if you just, David was a real man. If I had to, if I had people hunting me and, and wanted to kill me and I had to run and I had to hide in caves and sleep in caves, it might wear on me after a little while, probably two or three days. David had been doing this for months at the very least. And that's where we come into this chapter. And, and it, you, we see it was starting to drain on David. Look at, look at verse 1. Then David said in his heart. It literally said, means David said to his heart. David said to his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. 
And then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So verse 2 says that David took his 600 men to the Philistines, and they went into the land of the Philistines to Gath even. Right? You might remember that Gath was the, the, the famous hometown of one well-known large human being, Goliath. Right? And you might remember, to add to the awkwardness of this, because David was the one that killed that rather large human being, David is now carrying Goliath's sword. We told that from, from, from chapter 21. That's the sword he's carrying around. So he's like, not only did he awkwardly kill that guy, here's what I did it with. And he goes to that guy's hometown. Uh, I don't know what kind of welcome he received, but Achish is the king of Gath here, and David went to seek shelter with him. Right off the bat, though, it should feel like something is a little off-kilter. Um, that the whole, that whole little setup should feel a little wrong. Because, why? Because we've already talked about how anybody, any of us, would have been almost beside ourselves with weariness and with anxiety. And he knows he's in trouble, but where is he turning for his security? Where is he turning for his help? Philistia? We've seen time and time again in, in, these story, in the stories of these chapters, time and time again in the recent chapters, how David repeatedly cries out to the Lord. He cries out to the Lord for wisdom. He inquires of the Lord uh, for wisdom, for help, for encouragement. But here he doesn't do that. And, and in fact, I'm going to go ahead and tell you at the outset of chapter 27, one of, the, one of the most striking things about chapter 27 is not so much for what it says, but what is, is, is very absent from this chapter. What is very absent from chapter 27 is any mention of God at all. God is not a part of chapter 27. David doesn't cry out to him. And the Lord justly doesn't make himself known, doesn't make his word known to David. David is not seeking the Lord, and so the Lord remains hidden from him as a result. Instead of crying out to the Lord, what does verse 1 say he does? He talks to himself. He talks to himself. David, it says, he said in his heart, it's he said to his heart. He's talking to himself. That's, that's not an abnormal reality. Anyway, we talk to ourselves all the time. You're talking to yourself throughout every day, all day, every day. Uh, it's what he told himself that was the problem. All right? Ralph Davis has a great couple of commentaries on First and Second Samuel. Here's what he says about David here, and I, I just thought it worth reading. He said, David was talking to himself, and what he kept saying to himself determined his action. What you say and keep saying to the center of you will direct your way. All of us propagandize our souls. Um, that is, we constantly talk to ourselves. Not many do this audibly, but we continually do it. How crucial it is to feed our souls true propaganda, especially about the adequacy of our God. Soul talk, he, he continues, soul talk is quite a familiar idea in the Bible, remember how Jesus depicted the farmer whose silos and bank account were full, and the farmer says, I will say to my soul, soul, imagine you have ample goods laid up for many years, Luke 12, 19. He says, there is a whole world and life view in that statement, and he concludes with this, the junk you tell yourself can make a difference. 
And David, David knew that. I mean, you can, you, you can see him at other times taking the wiser course. Think of like Psalm 62.5 where David says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. So he had faced silence from the Lord before, but what did he tell himself in that? In that wait, O oh my soul, wait. Man, if he would have told himself that in this instance, he might not have felt himself or put himself in the predicament he did, which is what? Well, it's not apparent right away. Because if you look down at verse 4, his decision appears to have worked. Verse 4 says, And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, if you're looking at verse 4, he no longer sought him. Well, man, sometimes when we make stupid decisions, um, it's not immediately evident how stupid the decision was uh, or even if it was stupid at all. Sometimes, sometimes you, you, you do the right thing for the wrong reason or the wrong thing for the wrong reason. It doesn't immediately show up the consequences of that. But, the, but you still, even though you don't see it here, you still kind of feel like, I feel like we're headed in the wrong direction and it might not end up very good. And I think we're going to be right because look how it goes. So David goes to Gath. He's, he's under King Achish. And what you see at the end of chapter 27, I think David is trying to make himself feel better that he's doing the right thing, but it's still clear that he's operating out of a, a worldly kind of thinking rather than seeking the Lord's wisdom. How do we see that? Well, um, he, he's, li- he's been living, he and his men have been living in Gath right under the nose of King Achish. And so David tries to pull a fast one on Achish, and he says, Hey, Achish, we're kind of crowding Gath. I know we're, we're kind of taking up a lot of your space and a lot of your resources. Why don't you do us a favor? Because there's David plus 600 and their families. He says, Why don't you give us somewhere out in the country where we're out, out of your way and out of your hair, uh, and we'll just, we'll just camp out there. And so... Uh, he presents it as doing Achish a favor. Really, he just wants to be out of Achish's watchful eye. So Achish buys it. And he says, all right, there's a town called Ziklag. You guys can have that. It's a good piece of way. So Achish gave David and his men the town of Ziklag. And it says they lived there for a year and four months. It says that in verse 7. They lived in the country of the Philistines a year and four months. Well, what did they do with their time while they were there? Again, this is where we see David is still a mixed bag in his head. He's trying to do what's right, sort of, in the wrong way. Verses 8 through 12. Let's zoom in right there. In verse 8, it tells us what David does. Verse 8 says that David and his men would go and raid different places. The Geshurites, the Gerzites, the Amalekites, and all, all others all the way down to Egypt. Basically, what are those? He's raiding different Philistine territories. He's, he's in Philistia. He's in the country, out of the watchful eye of the king. And from there, he's from Philistia, he's invading the Philistines. He is going to different Philistine towns uh, and, 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 and attacking uh, them. And, and in so doing, he's helping Israel. Right? He's, he's, he's attacking the Philistines, helping Israel from Philistia. When he raided, he, when he would, it tells us in verses 8 through 12, when he would raid those places, he would, he would get all their stuff, and he would bring some of that stuff back to Achish. Look, I brought you a present to make it look like he was working for the Philistines. Verse 10 says that whenever Achish would say, Hey, where'd you go today? 
David would deceive him and say, against the Negev of Judah, against the Negev of the Jeromelites, against the Negev of the Kenites. What is, what is that? That's basically different allies of Israel. And so even though he was raiding Philistine territories, he would lie and say, I've been raiding Israel's allies, deliberately deceiving Achish. Even more significantly here, though, how did he get away with that? Because you're right in the middle of Philistia, and you're attacking the Philistines. How are you getting away with that? It tells us twice in this passage, in verse 9 and in verse 11, that when David and his men would raid these Philistine towns, they, quote, would leave neither man nor woman alive. They would kill every living person in these towns. Why? Because Twitter didn't exist back then. They killed everybody so nobody could bring word back to Achish and say, bro, do you know what David's doing? Nobody could do that because nobody was alive when he got done with them. Think about what verse 11 says. He did this thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. And then it adds, such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines, which we've already said was nearly a year and a half. That's a lot of killing and a lot of deception. That's what I mean when I say that David was a mixed bag in his head at this point. He's not seeking the wisdom and the help of the Lord, but rather he's reasoning in his own mind from worldly wisdom. Sure, he's helping Israel in a way by dis destroying their enemies, right? But he's doing it by essentially butchering people for a year and a half, right? Without the Lord's command to do so. And he's lying about it to Achish all the while. Well, here's the predicament and the dilemma that that got David into. Achish believed him. He believed him. He thought, man, you're, 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 you're knocking off all the allies of Israel. I've got an idea. When it says, when verse 12 says, Achish trusted uh, David. That's the same, by the way, when it says Achish trusted David, that's the same verb there when it says Abraham believed God in Genesis 15, 6. Because David lied so convincingly, Achish was convinced that David had ruined his reputation in Israel because he really believed that David was knocking off all of Israel's allies and help. And so it teed David up for the next thing. And what you see as chapter 28 begins is the Philistines do what? They decide, okay, we want to invade Israel. And Achish tells David in verse 1, you're going to fight with us. Oof. David had to be th rethinking a lot of what he had been doing up to that point. But he's got to give Achish an answer. So in verse 2, he says this very vague thing. Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. Which is David punting. And David giving the vaguest kind of answer he could think of in the moment. In the meantime, we also read in verse 2 of chapter 28 that Achish wants David to be his bodyguard for the rest of his life. Achish, in other words, is saying, he doesn't just say, you're going with us. He says, you're going with me. There's a little irony here also. Because the Hebrew word translated bodyguard there literally means keeper of my head. Keeper of my head. 
the irony is he's asking the guy carrying Goliath's sword with which he removed Goliath's head to be the keeper of his head, right? But there you are. David has been asked to help the Philistines defeat Israel. He's the anointed king of Israel. He has been recruited as a result of his own deception to help defeat his own people. What in the world is going to happen? Well, that's where the narrator leaves us for now. It switches to, um, to Saul. But let's, let's marinate for a second in David's dilemma. We, we, won't, we won't know how that shakes out until the next chapter, but make no mistake, this whole episode is teaching us the foolishness of leaning on our own wisdom rather than the Lord's. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. But as soon as we feel the predicament David is in, we're introduced to an even bigger dilemma for Saul. This is the famous episode we find in the remainder of chapter 28. Many of you have read 1 Samuel 28 and thought, what in the world uh, are we to think about this? Well, let's think about it. Um, the backdrop is the reality, as we've just said, is the Philistines are about to attack Israel. We're, we're hitting pause on David's involvement in that whole deal. Now we're just saying, what does Saul do when he hears about it? Uh, and Saul knows a war is about to break out, and he doesn't feel good about it. The first bit of ominous news we get in his case is the, rem is the reminder in verse 3 that Samuel had died. Now Samuel had died. And all Israel had mourned for him and buried him uh, in Ramah in his own city. Um, why remind us of that? Because Samuel was the one who brought the word of the Lord to Saul. Um, but with Samuel now gone, Saul doesn't know what to do. Verse 6 says that when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Which is why verse 5 says, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. So what does Saul do? You know, the Lord often seems silent to us. Um, I mean, even David had times like that in his better moments. You know, David says in Psalm 13, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? That's Psalm 13. The posture of a believing heart in that moment is how that psalm ends. Psalm 13 ends this way. I have, even though the silence of the Lord is loud, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt with me bountifully. The believing heart still trusts God's goodness and he knows that he can hope in the future because of God's actions in the past and God doesn't change. But what does Saul do when the Lord doesn't answer? Well, we were also told back in verse 3, at some point, Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Well, that's a good thing. The law of Moses said to do that, but that's also a very curious thing to bring up right here, right? Um, when, when, when David faced the, the silence of the Lord, he just talked to himself. Well, when you bring up mediums and necromancers here, you think, well, Saul might talk to somebody a little worse. And... Uh, and then and that's what we find. He seeks out, when God, when, when, when God is silent toward him, he seeks out a, a medium who might conjure up Samuel for him. And he found one, it says, in Endor. 
That's uh, in verse 7, in Endor. And without going into very much detail, Endor, by the way, was very close to where the Philistines were camped. So David was really sticking his neck out uh, for this. But the imagery and the, and the circumstances associated with this just scream the downfall of Saul. First of all, verse 8 says that Saul, because he had made mediums and necromancers illegal, he had put them out. He's kind of doing something against his own law by going to this medium. So verse 8 says he disguised himself and put on other garments, which means what? He took off his royal garments. He took them off. That's kind of rich with significance. And then the verse says he also went at night, also sort of meaningful, like Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. Well, the medium doesn't want to get into trouble, so Saul, who is disguised, swears to her by the Lord. Really? That's what he says. He says, verse 10, he swore to her by the Lord, the Lord who will not talk to him anymore. The Lord li- as the Lord lives, no punishment will come to you. Um, so you're not going to get in trouble. So she asks him, who do you want me to bring up? And he says, Samuel. Now, this is where a lot of people get confused because they're like, did she really conjure up the spirit of Samuel? What's that all about? Like, when we're dead and gone, can a, can a medium bring people back like that? Um, what's that all about? Well, a few things about that. First of all, it was pretty typical among the, the godly in Israel in those days that even then that mediums are just a sham. They were just a sham. This is what Isaiah 8.19 says. Isaiah 8.19, you might make a note of that. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their Lord? Good point. But notice Isaiah says of the mediums, they chirp and mutter. Others have said that they they were often ventriloquists (laughs) and made noises to to con people that they had brought up some some spirit and I th- and I think that's got some merit here when we see what happens. But second of all, if you look carefully at the text, we're not told what she did exactly. It's simply that Samuel appeared. It says he when he says in verse 11, "Bring up Samuel for me." It verse 12 says, "When the woman saw Samuel." It doesn't say exactly what she did. Um But I really do think it's Samuel who appears based on what we see later in the text. More on that in a second. But when Samuel appears, verse 12 says that this medium cried out with a loud voice. NIV says she cried out at the top of her voice. She was scared silly. In other words, this was not what usually happened. Right? She was a con. But how then did it happen then? How did it happen? The Lord sovereignly made it happen. Because this really is the spirit of Samuel. God didn't do it because of her, but despite her. He was doing something for Saul, not for her. Right? Everything, when Samuel, the spirit of Samuel comes, everything that he says is according to what Samuel in life already told Saul. That the kingdom had been removed from him, that he and his sons would meet therein the next day. Well, that, that's a dilemma a little worse than what David faced. There's not a whole lot of wiggle room in that one. Um, And not surprisingly, Saul is despondent. 
He doesn't want any. He doesn't want to eat anything. But the medium is, insists. He, she, she, there's a fattened calf. She kills the fattened calf, cooks it, makes some unleavened bread. Uh, she makes Saul eat, and he eats his final meal. That's that's what we're seeing. We're seeing Samuel eating his final meal. Fattened calf, unleavened bread. He's eating a meal fit for a king, but it's amazing, really. You might remember in, in the story of Samuel, Saul's first meal. Do you remember back in chapter 9 when Samuel meets Dave, uh, Saul and his friend? They were looking for the donkeys, and they go to the sacrifice, and Samuel invites Saul to the meal and gives Saul the portion that was meant for Samuel. He's eating this, this, um, this meal at a joyous occasion of dedication and, and commitment to the Lord. And now you're at his final meal where he has taken off his royal garments and he sits at a satanic medium, eating a meal fit for a king, but one whose kingdom had been removed from him. Well, we've seen two dilemmas. We need to consider the outcomes of each, which we'll try to move through quickly in the next couple of chapters. First, David's deliverance in chapters 29 and 30. Remember David's dilemma. He's been ruthlessly butchering Philistine territories and lying to Achish about it, saying he was raiding Israel's allies. And now he was asked to go and help them defeat Israel, a mess of his own making because he didn't inquire of the Lord. He didn't trust God's provision. So how does he get out of this one? Because he didn't say, go with us and fight. He says, you're going to be my bodyguard for life. You're going to go with me. Well, what, what we find in chapter 29 is, how, is one level of David's deliverance. Because when Achish goes and he tells the, the Philistine nobles, hey, David's going to fight with us, him and his guys. He's going to be my, army, my, my bodyguard, keeper of my head. Philistine nobles say, uh-uh, no way. He ain't going with us. No chance. And so basically, that's how God saved David from the mess of his own making. David's like, I don't know what to say. So God just made the Philistines go, no, nah, he ain't going with us. And he sent him back to Ziklag. Uh, Achish tried to persuade them, but to no avail. Uh, but I want you to notice in, verse, in chapter 29 what it says three times in this chapter. Achish says three times, in, once in verse 3, another time in verse 6, a third time in verse 9, he tells David he has found no fault in him. When, 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 the, when the nobles first say, now, he ain't going with us. Achish says, I've not found any fault in him. I've not found anything wrong. When David says, what do, he's playing dumb. He's like, but uh, why, why can't I go? He's probably thinking, Phew. He said, why can't I go? And Achish says, I don't, I don't you know, verse 9, I'd not, I don't know. You've, you've been blameless in my sight. Now, I don't know how David received that with a straight face because he had been anything but faultless. Uh, he's been just butchering people but and lying about it but either way do you see how that's just a little little something that kind of points you forward to a greater anointed one coming david is obviously not the one but there's a greater one coming you another one who would stand before Pilate and hear i find nothing wrong with him i i, I can't find any wrong in him and it would be true of him in that case but in chapter 30 this represents a Another level of David's deliverance, not just from the hand of the Philistines, um, but in a greater way, in that he appears for a time to have learned his lesson. When his men 
we're in chapter 30 now, when his men get back to Ziklag, took them three days to get back. What do they find in verse 2, verses 1 and 2? He finds that uh, the town had been burned and that the Amalekites had taken away all their people, including David's family. It's very easy to read that in a very sanitized and faraway way. I just try to imagine it, though. Read it autobiographically. You've, you've just been in a stressful situation, yes, of your own making. But, man, you got out of it. Hard three-day journey. When you get back, it's like, am I really seeing this? The town is burned, and all your people are gone. I, that's why chapter 30, verse 4 it says, chapter 30, verse 4 says, they raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. But this time, what do we find David doing? Verse 6, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Verse 8, David inquired of the Lord about what to do. So David had not just been delivered from the Philistines who said, nah, he's not going with us. But he's, been, he's being delivered from his own spiritual slump and waywardness. He asked the Lord, what would you have us do about these Amalekites who've burned our town, taken our people? The Lord said, go get them. And see what happens when the Lord is in it. It says as they, toward the second half of, uh, or later in, in, in um, chapter 30, it says they pursue the Amalekites. And down in verse 11, it says they just randomly... They just randomly, quote-unquote, run into this Egyptian man, and they say, who are you? And it just, he just happens to be the servant of an Amalekite coming from the raid at Ziklag. How about that? David and his men, they treat him well. They give him things, things to eat and everything and, and, and say, hey, would you tell us where the Amalekites are? And uh, he said, well, just don't hurt me. He said, sure, I won't hurt you. Just tell us where they are. And they said, well, they're down there. They're partying. And David left nobody standing. Like David went and he, it, it, the language, the language in, in verses 16 and following, what you see is like none escaped. All was recovered. All was brought back. All was captured. That's the language of the text. It says, verse 19, nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been, uh, taken. David brought back all. Right? None escaped. And incidentally, who did David do this to? The Amalekites. The Amalekites. How about that? Um, weren't they the ones back in chapter 15 that the Lord said to Saul, go wipe them out? And when Saul went, he didn't wipe them completely out. And Samuel was like, what is this bleeding of sheep that I hear? He didn't do it. Well, now David finishes the job. And David said in verse 23, the Lord had given him the victory. He has preserved us. That was the reason, the whole Amalekite thing, that was the reason that the kingship was taken away from Saul. And David has now done it. And David divided up the spoil among his people. It is, it is interesting. Uh, we were talking about this before the, 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 uh, the hour that uh, 
it says uh, when uh, when he some of them didn't want the didn't want look, look in verse like you're in chapter thirty look in uh, let's let's start in uh, verse twenty two because they had all the spoil and then it says then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said. Because 200 men who didn't, didn't go with them to the Amalekites, they were exhausted. And these, these guys said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we recovered except that each man should lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share, for as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall all share alike. And, it, and he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. What that reminded me of uh, was Jesus' parable of the workers in the vineyard. And uh, when some came first thing in the morning, and they worked all day in the vineyard, right? And, 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 and throughout the day, he hired more and more until he hired the last ones just an hour before quitting time. And when it came time to pay up, those who had worked all day thought they were going to get paid the most. Those who worked only an hour got paid the least. What happens in the parable? They all get paid the same. And those who, were, they, those who had worked the longest complained about it. But what did, what did Jesus basically say? It's all of grace anyway. Right? It's all of grace. Well, David divides up the spoil. But we need to move on. Chapter 31, the, the attention again bounces back to Saul in chapter 31 where we learn of Saul's demise. Saul's demise. When the Philistines did attack Israel, David was spared from that, Israel fled. And just as the Lord had said through Saul, in verse 2, it says the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. Badly wounding Saul, in verse 2 says killing, killing his sons, including Jonathan. Saul then, very, very badly wounded in verse 3 and verse 4, he asks his armor bearer to kill him. When the armor bearer says, nah, I can't do that. You're, you're the anointed of the Lord. Um, Saul commits suicide. He falls on his own sword, commits suicide, and his armor bearer then does the same. And it tells us over and again, all this happened on the high place of Gilboa. That that's going to be significant in 2 Samuel 1 in the song that David writes. But notice how, before we move on to the last point, I want you to notice how the Philistines reacted to the death of Saul. Verse 8 says that, uh, or verse, verse 9 rather, says that they, um, they cut off his head. Coincidence? No. Nah. And it says in verse 9, they carried the good news to the house of their idols. They thought that their victory was a testimony to the gospel of their idolatry. The good news. By the way, you can read more on this in 1 Corinthians 10. I mean, 1 first, first Corinthians, 1 Chronicles 10. 1 Chronicles 10, 10 says that when they cut off Saul's head, where did they put it? They put it in the temple of Dagon. You remember Dagon? God had taken care of Dagon. He kept, they kept coming in and he'd find him falling over on the floor and his head was cut off and his hands were cut off. His head was, well, they removed Saul's head and they put it in Dagon's temple. 
1 Samuel ends on a low note. But one that we, you just feel that there's hope and promise coming behind it. The text does linger a bit on Saul's demise on into the first chapter of 2 Samuel. So let's, let's, let's think finally. We'll actually have hopefully some time to talk around our tables about David's dedication. As we enter into 2 Samuel 1, its first words are, after the death of Saul. So it opens with the demise that 1 Samuel ended with. And the first half of the chapter tells of an Amalekite sojourner, which means he was an Amalekite, but who had been not living among the Amalekites, but who had lived living among the Israelites, comes to David. And you don't know why he does this. Maybe he just, in some twisted reason, wanted some glory. But what I'm, I'm summarizing. What does this Amalekite tell David? He, first of all, he informs David that Saul and Jonathan were dead. David, obviously, is very heartbroken. He wept and he fasted. But then David questions the man, how do you know this? How do, how, how do you know? And the man makes up a story. We know he makes it up because the narrator's already told us what actually happened. He makes up a story. Oh, I just happened to be there, and Saul said, kill me. And so I did. That's basically his story. David, by the way, because there was no Twitter, David didn't know that he wasn't telling the truth. He, the man was making up a lie. David believed him. And so what does David do? David asks him in verse 14, how is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And he ordered the man to be executed. That man's lie cost him his life. There's a whole lot more we could say about that. But I really need to say something about the song of dedication to Saul and Jonathan in the second half of chapter 1. We don't have time to go into it, but this, is a, this whole song is a chiasm. Notice the re- repetition of... Um, how the mighty have fallen in verse 19. How the mighty have fallen. Um, that is repeated three times. It's ch- ch- verse 19, how the mighty have fallen. Verse 25, how the mighty have fallen. Verse 27, how the mighty have fallen. There are echoes of Hannah's song from chapter 2 in this song. But he goes back and forth between lamenting Saul, lamenting Jonathan. Before, before we close, I do want to mention one final verse that, that has for a while been taken by many in a wrong way. And I feel like in the way that our culture is currently going could easily be pointed out in a wrong way. And it's verse 26. David writes, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Some of you might even read that and feel a little uncomfortable with it. But some have taken that to indicate that Jonathan and David were homosexual. I mean, that that point of view is out there, right? But that's simply not the case. And I, I... uh, I, I thought about what this verse says, and I was actually, just to indicate how not that that is, I remembered a video I saw a few years ago of uh, a, World War, a British World War II veteran from, who fought at Normandy. 
and uh, him talking about that. I'm going to play the video for you. It's a little over a minute. He, he was on a British TV show, and he was just describing what the battle was like, but I want you to listen particularly to what he says at the end of that video. Thank don't, you. Don't thank me, and don't say I'm a hero. I'm no hero. I was lucky. I'm here. All the heroes are dead, and I'll never forget them as long as I live. When Jeez. I landed, it was hell. I've never seen any like him in life. Uh, you had the ships flying over your head, and you had the Germans flying you from inland. And 88 millimeter guns they used, which would blow you off the face of the earth. A mate of mine died in my arms, and he was in, in, in a field in Cairn. And he had a three week old baby, it's called Needs, and they took me to the 60th anniversary to find out where he buried. And they buried him in a little cemetery called La Deliverance. And I, I go up there and put a cross on his grave. All I know is Normandy veterans love one another beyond the love of women. If you was in a hole in the ground with a boat, you got to know him, marvellous men. My generation saved the world. And I'll never forget any of them. We just need to, I, I say all that to say, we, when we read things like that in Scripture, we need to be aware of our culture's hypersexualized outlook on everything, especially on every conceivable aspect of love. Um, but like what that man said, David and Jonathan had been through trial and struggle together, and Jonathan's faithfulness to David had been like nothing David had ever experienced in his life or known before. And I just think that was worth you seeing and hearing. Well, these chapters have taken us through the conclusion of, of Saul's four-decade reign. And the story is now going to fully transition to David's reign as the anointed one of the Lord. Well, I hope these chapters have taught us something, not just about history, but about walking faithfully with the Lord and leaning not our, on our own wisdom, which often leads us into a lot of trouble, but acknowledging Him in all our ways so that He directs our path.